This episode is sponsored by a company I've used for well over a decade, and that is 511. I wore their uniforms back in Anaheim, California, and have used their products ever since. From their incredibly strong yet light footwear to their cut uniforms for both male and female responders, I found them hands down the best workwear in all the departments that I've worked for. Outside of the fire service, I use their luggage for everything and I travel a lot. And they are also now sponsoring the 7X team as we embark around the world on the Human Performance Project. We have Murph coming up in May. And again, I bought their plate carrier. I ended up buying real ballistic plates rather than the fake weight plates. And that has been my ride or die through Murph the last few years as well. But one area I want to talk about that I haven't in previous sponsorship spots is their brick and mortar element. They were predominantly an online company up till more recently, but now they are approaching 100 stores all over the US. My local store is here in Gainesville, Florida, and I've been multiple times. And the discounts you see online are applied also in the stores. So as I mentioned, 511 is offering you 15% off every purchase that you make. But I do want to say, more often than not, they have an even deeper discount, especially around holiday times. In fact, if you're listening to this in the months of April or May, 511 Days is coming up. Between May 9th and May 16th, you will get 20% off all gear and apparel. And that applies both online and in-store. But if you use the code SHIELD15, that's shield one five you will get 15% off your order or in the stores every time you make a purchase. And if you want to hear more about 511, who they stand for and who works with them, listen to episode 580 of Behind the Shield podcast with 511 Regional Director Will Ayers. Welcome guys to the Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show British firefighters Georgina Becky Becky and Nikki, also known as the Antarctic Fire Angels. Now, in November of this year, they will be embarking on an incredible expedition to the South Pole to raise money for the firefighters charity. So we discuss a host of topics from each of their journeys into the fire service, and each one is very unique. The importance of firefighter fitness, mental toughness, the incredible cold weather training they've embarked upon in Norway to prepare for this expedition, how you can help with fundraising and exposure, and so much more. Now, before we get to this incredible conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Every single five-star rating truly does elevate this podcast, therefore making it easier for others to find. And this is a free library of over 750 episodes now. So all I ask in return is that you help share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to every single person on planet Earth who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you the Antarctic Fire Angels. Enjoy. Well, I want to say thank you so much to all five of the Fire Angels for joining me on this podcast today. 
I know you are literally spread all over the British Isles right now, or maybe even beyond. I'm not sure where some of you are. Um, but I want to start by welcoming you onto the Behind the Shield podcast today. Hi. Hi, James. All right. So because there's five of us, as I was telling before we hit recording, um, uh, what I'm going to do is introduce each of you. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about each of your journeys to where you are now. And then obviously we can kind of unpack your Norway trip and then the Antarctica trip later this year. So let's start with uh, Georgina. So uh, the question I love to ask at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and tell me a little bit about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Oh, right. Okay. It was quite short. I'm a small family. Um, so I was born in Wales in a, a town called Bridgend and uh, brought up in uh, a, a, a town called Porthcawl. Um, so it's just me and my sister. So she's four years older than me and she's an ultra runner. So also has that chip in there somewhere as well, but she's a bit more cray than me. Um, and uh, yeah, so uh, mother and father, my uh, my mother passed away when I was 21, years and years and years and years and years ago. Uh, and uh, my father lives in a town called Atlantic Major and uh, with uh, with my stepmother. So and he uh, he is retired. He used to be a pilot, a shipping pilot in Portalbert and Swansea, bringing in all the big tankers. And uh, before that, he was in the Navy for, for 10 years. So, um, yeah, I was kind of inspired to go into some sort of uniform, uniformed service through him, really. So, yeah, that's me. Very brief family. <laughs> well, I used to, I went to um, the Welsh College of Music and Drama for a year. So is, isn't Bridge End between Cardiff and Swansea, have I got that right? Or is it the other yeah, side? It is. Okay. No, 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 yeah, it's between Cardiff and Swansea. Yeah, pretty much smack bang. Yeah. Right. Well, I mean, I want to talk about your um, perceived career aspirations, and I know you're very passionate about women in, you know, a lot of the quote, the quote unquote male professions. Before we do, though, the mental health element is very, very important, and obviously, we're finally realizing the impact on us in uniform however i think one of the least discussed elements is trauma that we brought into the profession before we ever put the uniform on what impact did losing your mother have on on your foundation as you kind of uh, traversed into our profession um it's my, my mother was was a very kind of very strict lady so and it's quite quite the darwinist i have to say so um it's it kind of hardened me up a little bit. It's probably not what what people want to hear, really, but it did hard did harden me up to, to life quite a lot. And um, although the circumstances of her death, she died of breast cancer, and uh, when she was fifty four, and she knew there was a lump in her breast three years before that, but she was too scared to go and see about it. But she knew what it was, but she wouldn't um, accept any treatment for it because as, as brave or ridiculous or ludicrous as that sounds she was like well that's the the, the fact of, of life and you know I'm, I'm meant to go before my children etc etc and and that's what that's what happened as tragic as that as that sounds but being brought up into into that quite sort of um that that environment um it uh it's a sort of the foundation i've got this quite a hard one as in you know school of hard knocks kind of hard one and not necessarily a good one because um i potentially struggle with empathy for other people that have that have lost parents and things because i've come from that particular background um so as sad as it was but um you know i've actually cried more over lost pets than uh, <laughs> than, than a parent believe it or not but 
it's it is one of those things it's she was a very strict lady and um she was as soon as you were 18 it was okay now you need to start thinking about moving out you know where you're gonna go what you're gonna do and and things both me and my sister uh moved out at uh, as, as soon as the those classic apron strings were ready to be cut and uh, but i mean we were brought up to very much stand on our own two feet you know emotionally financially uh, everything and which you know every child deserves to be brought up like like, like that um but it, it was um yeah that 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 was that don't get me wrong we never we never wanted for anything we 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 were very lucky in 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 everything that we had growing up through our childhood um but you know they always made us uh really know that it came from an area of hard a place of hard work so you know my, my father would be away working things like that so it always came from a place of hard work so you know and back then there was no such thing as a credit card so they worked hard for everything so yeah that's so that's my that's my school and the, the girls are always grinning at me now they're like oh that makes sense now <laughs> <laughs> yeah maybe everyone will learn a little bit about each other today hopefully um well it's on the website so i'm asking this but um i kind of chuckled to myself tell me about your aspirations for the Royal Navy and the advice you got from your mother regarding that. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so I said I always I said I wanted to be a, um, in the Navy because my father was in the Merchant Navy and women couldn't join the Merchant Navy then, so it was the Wrens. And um, so she said, you know, she said, oh, you, don't, you don't want to join the Wrens. She said all they do is uh, they push paperwork around, uh, march a lot, um, get fat calves, and become lesbians. <laughs> so. <laughs> So I said, so I thought to myself, oh, well, I don't want to get fat calves. So I kind of put that career on hold. <laughs> I didn't mind the marching a lot, but I thought, well, if you march a lot and get fat calves, then then I'm not sure that's that's the career for me. And it's, it's really bizarre. Something so simple, such a simple statement like that can influence you so much. But in with hindsight, if I joined the Navy back then or, or the Army or any of the, the, the armed services, um, Back then, obviously, the, the the girls didn't do the same as the boys, and I think I would have spent my entire career incredibly frustrated because, you know, I wanted to be, you know, on the front line. I, you know, I wanted to be a Royal Marine and, and and all those, you know, all those very physically demanding roles. And of course, they they just were not available to girls when when I was growing up in any shape or form. Couldn't join the Sea Cadets, nothing. It was brownies and girl guides, and that that was that back then. So um, uh, yeah, so that's that's the that's the background there. Well, speaking of kind of blinkered thinking, talk to me about the way that your sexuality was viewed in the military back then too. Um, well, I mean, it's well, it was it was frowned upon. You know, I, I don't know whether it has the same thing as "Don't ask, don't tell." Um, but uh, yeah, it was it was frowned upon. I, I, I believe it was illegal. So again, I mean, I knew people that were in the army and, you know, they got, they got caught, you know, being with other women and, you know, they got court martialed for it or, you know, severely reprimanded and, and things like that. And, you know, the, I think the, it's been a long time catching up with society, I think, um, you know, making that a, a ridiculous thing to prosecute, you know? Um, so again, there would have been an extremely high level of frustration for me and uh, I mean, back then I was quite kind of career driven, you know, I knew what I wanted and things and my sexuality was very much on the back burner and relationships were very much on the back burner for me because I knew exactly what I wanted. But then you reach a certain point in your life and, and you just think to yourself, well, OK, I need to strike a balance here between, 
you know, home life, career, sexuality, what I want out of out of relationship, in a relationship, and and security and everything like that. And your your outlook changes, and then you suddenly realise. I, I just wouldn't have been able to have joined the army or the navy back then. I wouldn't have been able to express any of my um, exactly who I am. I wouldn't have been able to express exactly who I am, and yeah, that would have been frustrating. And I probably would have ended up leaving early. Yeah. So, no, absolutely. I mean, it, it's crazy when you look at it now with twenty twenty three eyes. But I mean, that was such a short time ago that people were still thinking that way. So talk to me about finding the fire service and your kind of on-ramp experience, your first couple of years. Uh, well, I first joined uh, Retained, which is now known as On Call in Porthcawl, because I, li- I lived in Porthcawl. And uh, I joined them because um, I also uh, applied for the police as well. And, uh, you know, any uniform. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and again, the fire service came through. And again, it was the only it was the only service that where the girls did exactly the same as the boys. They were treated exactly the same as the boys, because even in the police back then, certain roles were barred from 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 women, you know, uh, armed um, dog handling, that sort of thing um, and things. So that a lot of those roles were still not available to to women in certain forces. So I looked at the fire service and I thought, well, this is exactly what I want and what I need in my life. And so I joined Encore and I was the first woman in Porthcore Fire Station. And there was um, at the time back then, it's all very much changed now. Um, back then, there were no facilities for women, no changing rooms. The toilet was like the, what, let's, let's just say the, the, the everything, the all in toilets, you know. And uh, yes, there was no male or female facility. So I was the first one there. And it was quite, they were really sweet. They were so, so sweet in trying to, you know, curb their swearing and, you know, <laughs> and, and take, taking taking the, the calendars off the walls and the magazines off the shelf that shouldn't have been there and things. You know, back then the fire service was a very, very different place to what it, to what it is now. And um, yeah, so they were they were falling over themselves to be really nice to me, and I just I just turned around and said, "Stop being so nice. It's it's really sickly, you know." And you know, I can carry the same hose as you guys. I can I could do exactly the same as you. Just just stop. And, and they and they were like, "Oh, right, right, okay." And so and then from that, then I joined Hull Time in Mid and West Wales, and I never looked back really. So you know, my whole career was twenty twenty. I joined in Hull Time in two thousand, so I've been Hull Time for twenty three years. So it's about 25 years in total. I've, I've, I've been at it and I still love it. I wouldn't do anything else. Beautiful. All right. Well, then let's bring in Becky Hinchley. Got to make sure I get the right name so we don't get confusion there. Um, and uh, we'll kind of walk you through the same journey. So, Becky, tell me about your family dynamic, where you grew up and then um, what your parents did. Um, so I was born in Darleydale, which is a... Uh, uh, and uh, like a cottage hospital that used to be in the Derbyshire Dales, but that it's now um it's now been knocked down and turned into houses. Uh, and then um I grew up in a family, so I have uh one younger brother, and, and then I have uh, uh an older stepbrother and two younger stepsisters. Um, so I had quite a quite a busy uh, mental household growing up. Um. My uh, my dad is uh, he's a, an electrical engineer. I think he'd call himself now, but he you, he did a lot of different things. We um, we spent a lot of time uh, in his truck when he was uh, a truck driver. Um, did a bit of time on the farm, um, and then eventually turned into an electrical engineer. And my mum 
Um, she's uh, pretty much the same. She started uh, as a childminder. Um, so to add to the chaotic house, we also used to have kids from all sorts of different families as well coming in when she was childminding. Um, and then uh, she became a mobile phone um, uh, shop owner, which goes against everything that I stand for because I'm absolutely absolutely useless um, with with technology. And she was one of the first kind of women that uh, took hold of the mobile phones when they all started to come out in the late 90s. Um, and then now she is a uh, she's a, a cleaner for um, uh, like holiday cottages. Um, and then my step my step family are very similar. My my stepdad is also a truck driver and my uh, stepmom helps out with my dad um, and also works at a, a local school as well. So what made you without military in your immediate family? What made you seek out the army? um so i uh when i left school i disappeared i went traveling because i didn't really know what i wanted to do with my life at all um so i spent the last few years of my school life actually working and earning money to be able to disappear and go away and get out of tiny little derbyshire um and when i returned i returned to tiny little derbyshire um, and basically fell into the same um life that I'd left behind so I was looking for something that was uh going to take me places that was going to challenge me I was quite a um quite an active um quite an active person so I wanted something that was going to be uh active as well um and so I looked online and the first uh, military service that came up was the army so that's the one I applied for um and then i so i then joined them in 2013 um and that was the beginning of the career so how did you find yourself in military policing specifically uh military so when i went to the um the military careers office um again I, a similar situation where i was quite limited to what i could join back then um, there was still some roles that women weren't able to take part in. I really wanted to be a tank mechanic, um, but I was not allowed to do that. So when I went in, I was offered uh, three choices. So I could either be a chef, a clerk or a policewoman. And I, I'm terrible at cooking. So that would have been a really bad idea for everyone else in the British Army. <laughs> um, I can write, but I wasn't really interested in the clerk side of things because I thought that was just going to leave me behind a desk and that was not what I wanted to do at all. So the the, the remaining option was uh, the military police. Um, so, yes, yeah, so that's how I fell into that. I'm not from a law background. I don't have degrees. Um, I have no interest in arresting people. Um, so I, uh, I ended up falling into that role um, and pretty much... See, after my first posting then proceeded to, to badger anyone that I could to let me go and do something more active so I used to try and get onto uh, all the activities with the infantry or if there was something going on somewhere I'd try to get on board with them um, and eventually started to harass them to let, let me go across being a mechanic um, and that was pretty much the, the turning point when I, I, unfortunately I was um, I don't know, denied 
being able to transfer to being um, a mechanic whilst in the regular army. So um, I transferred out and became a reservist, and now I'm a mechanic in the reservist army. And uh, explain to me the evolution of that, because I understand um, the the thinking behind you know, the old school mentality of, oh, we don't want women on the front line because of the whole, I guess, pseudo almost gentlemanly element of it, perhaps, and the prejudice. But when it comes to turning wrenches, explain to me what the issue was with repairing tanks. Is it because you were having to be at the front line? And how has that changed? And, and now you're able to in the in the uh, reservist role? So at the point I was transferring, I think the army had opened up a little bit better that women were able to move a bit more freely and do a few more tasks. They'd started to be, a lot of the women in the service had already started to push the boundaries and, and kind of open the door, even if it was closed. They were they were sick of being told no, I think, at that point. Um, and so it wasn't unheard of at all for women to be um, mechanics, maybe not tank mechanics, <laughs> Because uh, you do have to pretty much weigh the same size, same as a tank, to move some of the kit that's on there because it's armoured and and a lot heavier. Um, so I think that there had been a, a a change in mindset that they had allowed people to to move about a bit more freely. Um, for me, I think my circumstances were just that I was um, uh, kind of at a point in my career where I could continue down the path I was going on but um, purely and simply just had no interest in it um, and I think the systems that were in place in the, the British Army to be able to transfer in between units was more the barrier rather than um, my gender being an issue if that makes sense yeah no it does um, so yeah so I think I think I mean when I reached out to the reservist um, team, the British Army Reservist team, about wanting to become a mechanic. I know there were still people there that that were um, against me going and becoming an, a mechanic, but there were also just as many people that were supportive of me joining the team as a mechanic. So, um, you know, the prejudice was still there, but uh, there was a few more people that would fight your corner. Um, the the issue I think was you didn't necessarily know that there were still people that were against you because when you join a big organisation um, you're not necessarily aware of the people that are involved in your decisions and your career um, and it takes something for them to uh, or for, it takes something for you to find out that actually there are people fighting your corner and there are people fighting against you and it's what you do uh, from that point as to whether or not you're successful. Um, in trying to fight your own battles. Beautiful, yeah. It's an interesting perspective and it's something I've talked about a lot. I still have yet to understand how in World War II women were filling every quote-unquote male role at home and we were fighting alongside all colors and creeds and then you get to the 1950s and women are supposed to be back in the kitchen and racism is you know alive and well again and i don't i don't how, know how we missed that incredible lesson in like 1945 1946 that we regressed for quite a few decades after that i like to think that um that i followed the path of the queen because she was also in the in the army turning spanners on a on a Land Rover, um, <laughs> so it, so you're right. It was not unheard of at all for women to be um, to be doing the, the the dirty munitions factory work, 
um, all the all the now typically associated jobs that you would think, oh, that's not a role that a woman a woman um, would be seen to be doing. Um, so yeah, how we regressed, I don't know. Was it that there was too many people fighting against and not enough people fighting for at the time and there, there was different priorities back then and it was all about settling back into the UK? I don't know, but um, but I do think that we have uh, switched switched fire and, and moved on again that, that there there are uh, a lot more people um, I mean like us as a team we're, we're, we're fighting for women being in the fire service and and, and kind of raising their uh, raising their awareness of the fact that the career is open to them um, and that it's not all an uphill battle sometimes there are people that do actually want to be uh, do actually want to see you succeed Absolutely. Well, talk to me about your journey into the fire service. Um, so, yeah, so my journey into the fire service, once I left the regular service um, of the British Army, I fell back into my little life in Derbyshire. So <laughs> I returned back to um, back to Derbyshire um, and pretty much I dabbled in a lot of different careers at that point. I could, I can tell you how to break a break some stone how to make granite i can tell you how to install internet um, just because i again had no real idea where i wanted to go and what i wanted to do so after i tried a few different jobs i was um fortunate enough to get to uh an awareness day for derbyshire fire rescue service um and once i attended that day i realized that it was actually a career that i could do uh, a career that i uh, previously thought was not open to me something that I wouldn't never be able to do um and quite reassuringly a lot of the experiences that I'd had in the um the British army transferred quite well into the the fire service so I applied once or twice um the first time round I didn't make it through the um the written application process uh and then the second time round I did uh, and then that was the beginning of my career. So I'm now a, a whole time uh, crew manager at uh, Derbyshire Fire and Rescue Service. Um, and yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant. Beautiful, beautiful. Well, I want to talk about, um, you know, the the progress within our profession a minute once we've met everyone on the show. So I'm going to switch over to Beck's Openshaw Row, if I've got that right. Um, so let's... Uh, Let's do the same thing again. So tell me where you were born. Tell me a little about your family dynamic. Um, how many siblings? So I was also born in Bridgend General Hospital in Wales, uh, quite a few years after George. And um, <laughs> um, and um, I was brought up obviously with my mum and dad and my two-year younger brother, um, and um, I mainly spent a lot of my time um, by the coast. So I was brought up in a little village called Ogmore by Sea, which is um, right by the sea. Um, and I spent a lot of days down the beach um, on the common, cycling on my bike, um, just being outdoors, basically. Um, I was really fortunate, you know, where we lived was really beautiful and we had lots of space to to play and stuff uh, as kids, I think. And, um, and uh, my dad was... Um, always in manufacturing so he was always um sort of a manager or a director in manufacturing industry um in various companies and my mum worked part-time in the retail industry uh and still does um but her main job was looking after me and my brother 
for her sins, bless her. And um, um, and I suppose growing up, I think um, I was always really active and basically throwing myself out of trees, climbing, doing things that my mum would freak out about constantly. Um, and then as I got older, um, they directed me into sport to try and get rid of some of the energy that I had. Um, and then I've I basically lived my life pretty much in sport and through sport um as I've grown up from you know a young young kid through teenage years up into a to an adult basically well you competed at a very high level so tell me which sports you represented your country for uh yeah so I um, began my sporting career as a swimmer so I started um competitive swimming when I was nine uh at a club um and compete for for Wales quite a few times um and then as I got a bit older, um, I started doing a sport called surf lifesaving, which is really big on the coast of uh, South Wales and Cornwall, Devon, and then obviously Australia, um, America. So um, I started competing in that um, and I um, won two world championships and broke a world record during the time I was involved in that sport. I bet no one saw that coming in Australia and America that it would be a Welsh <laughs> no, woman. No, yeah. <laughs> yeah, the Aussies were a bit shocked because it was in Australia as well that I won it first. So um, yeah, it was a bit of a shocker at the time. It was a shocker for me, to be honest, as well. So I didn't also didn't see it coming. So <laughs> um, yeah, it was great. Um, and then uh, I went to university at Loughborough uh, in the Midlands. And um, during that time, I kind of had achieved everything I could in surf lifesaving and in swimming. And uh, my or my dream from a little kid had always been to go to the Olympics. And I think that's probably where sort of my sporting career and passion came from, really. I was obsessed with watching the Olympics, always wanted to be an Olympian. So um, I hadn't made it in swimming and lifesaving wasn't an Olympic sport. So then I went searching for another sport. Uh, when I was at university towards the end of uh, in my third year and found rowing and then I started rowing um, at the end of my university career which I found really difficult moving from one sort of being the best in one sport to the bottom of another uh, was really difficult um, but I persevered with it um, and managed to to get to grips with rowing and then ended up competing for Great Britain for a few years in rowing went to a world championships and European champs but then I got injured uh, the year of Beijing Olympics. Um, so that was a really difficult time for me because at the time it was my career as well. So I was paid to to compete and and, and row for Great Britain. So that was a really difficult time. Um, and then I had a couple of years, well, a year or so off just sort of getting my uh, head around not being an athlete anymore and being um, kind of a normal person to me um, and trying to find sort of my identity again. Um, and then I decided to take up rugby because um, a lot of my friends played it and I just needed something to to um, get sort of back into competition and ha- have a bit of a direction in just being active. Um, so I played or be a rugby is what I called it for three years. Um, and then um, Wales were doing a sort of a talent uh, identification day and um, I decided to go along to it and ended up being selected and getting into the Welsh team and then Ended up having a career in rugby, international career in rugby, and um, competed in three Six Nations championships and a World Cup. And then after the World Cup, unfortunately, I got injured again. And um, and that was kind of the end of my sort of international sport and career. But I was, by this point, I was 37. So I was getting on anyway, I think, in terms of my body, my poor body, it, I think, was starting to say, come on now, you've had, you've had enough of this. So, um, 
so yeah so um you know sport has been probably you know shaped my whole life really and shaped who i am i'd say but yeah i've had a great a great time so that loss of identity is something a lot of us struggle Mm. with when we transition out the fire service or the military but another Mm. group that i hear struggle a lot is the the sporting athlete and there was a great documentary called the weight of gold that talked about that very thing how Mm. did you deal with that loss of self that loss of identity when everything you've been doing was in a sporting space and now that injury took you from that dream position Mm. um uh well i did really struggle for for probably a good six months or more um and then i think just just finding something else to do so because you know i'd always been active and at that time you know while, while i was kind of just wandering in the wilderness i called it really um, feeling very depressed um, with myself. I sort of, I took up coaching, so I started coaching rowing, which helped because then I was involved a little bit and doing what I enjoyed. Um, and then obviously I had a lot of friends involved in rugby and they 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 dragged me, well, they didn't drag me because I've loved rugby, obviously being Welsh, but they kind of convinced me to go and start, um, you know, to join the club and start training. And I think just finding something else to do um, kind of got me, start, started to bring me back you know, to myself, but um, I think until I got back into sort of international rugby, I think you know, for the probably the three or four years where I wasn't really a high level athlete, um, I'm not sure if I was the real me. If you see what I mean, I was kind of you know, I was. Uh, don't get me wrong, I was enjoying myself, going out, having a great time, but I don't think it was it was the real me really until I got back into sort of that crazy athlete when I always on the prize type mentality. And um, and I think then it, it, it's the same then when I had to retire from rugby through injury. Mentally, I wasn't ready to retire. You know, I still wanted to continue for another few years. So I really, really struggled again with that and retiring and, you know, being a kind of normal person again and not having that. When people ask you what you're doing, you know, I didn't have that thing to say, well, actually, I'm in a athlete and I do this, that and the other. So, um, so yeah, it's a really difficult place. Just trying to be outside, I think. Just be active and outside. Oh, I don't know. And just having supportive people around you, I think, as well helps. But, you know, I still find it difficult now not being an international athlete, if I'm honest. I still, you know, it's been, it'll be six years this year since I stopped playing rugby. And I still find it really hard to watch the women's rugby when it comes around to Six Nations and kind of be around it. I still find it difficult. Yeah, try being a former firefighter paramedic and now you tell everyone you're a podcaster. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, I'll chat now. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty. It's like, there's no podcaster yeah. shirtless calendars in the world, I don't think. So. <laughs> um, well, speaking of your background, just when we're on the, the diversity topic, one of the real aha moments for me is whether whatever group that's underserved in our profession the answer you know you've got two types of answers you've got the box checking oh go out there and get me 50 of person x and bring them here and we'll swear them in which is you know as we all know is a horrible way of doing it or there's the mentorship model where you actually empower women you know whatever group that you're trying to empower you find the best people of that particular group you mentor them up to be able to be a great candidate for the fire service and you bring them in there's a great program in my city here that um, was started by one of my friends. And there's a lot of, you know, more socially, uh, socioeconomically challenged areas that we have. And they don't have to spend a penny. As long as they can show up to the fire station, they will give them equipment. They will give them training. There's scholarships to the fire academy. And then there's departments on the other end looking to hire. So it's a beautiful way of finding the best candidates. One of the things that I've been 
told by some of my friends when it comes to selecting women from the fire service is why are we not going to the places where women are physically excelling now obviously it's not just a physical job there's a mental component as well but there is a physical element we have to be able to move hose and lift ladders and drag people what is your um kind of philosophy on finding whether it's crossfit gyms or you know rowing clubs or whatever it is and and actually as you said educating people who are already walking the walk physically of the potential for the military law enforcement or fire yeah um you know, funny you should say that. So um, at the moment in London Fire Brigade, since since I've joined, I'd say it's probably about four, about six um, current or ex female rugby players who have now also who are now also in the London Fire Brigade. So I think there's definitely a place for that kind of um, you know going to to sports sporting clubs and and other areas where you've got the kind of maybe the the people with that kind of mentality or you know to be involved with the fire brigade because it's not only the physicality like you're saying but it's also the team aspect as well and you know a lot of people involved in team sports have that kind of team aspect that mentality that maybe probably would suit them well in in a job such as the military or or um the the services of fire brigade so there's definitely i think a place for that um yeah without a doubt because i think you might find the you know, because a lot of people don't realise that it's a, again females don't realise it's a job for for them. Even people involved in sporting sports teams or you know sort of um, rugby, football, that kind of thing. So yes, there's definitely a place for that. Definitely, absolutely. Yeah, because I've done CrossFit yeah. for. 15 16 years now and there is no better example of you know the potential of the male and female athlete than a sport like that i mean jujitsu i do is amazing but you don't have to be able to you know carry 100 pounds of gear 28 stories up to be a great jujitsu athlete but crossfit to move you know the weights and the sandbags and do the pull-ups and all the rope climbs i mean there is an element of physical fitness and strength so as a tactical athlete i would argue that we are asked to do an extremely high level of fitness and strength, but you don't have to be a power lifter. You don't have to be a, you know, a triathlete. You just have to Mm. be the right collection of those skills. So why not find whatever that is in your community where people are already exhibiting that, as you said, the mental toughness element, the team element and the sense of purpose to people that understand the why. Yeah. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with that. I I definitely agree. There's a place for that kind of positive recruitment in targeting in certain areas for sure. But I suppose it's just making sure that, you know, everyone gets the opportunity that might not be able to go to the sports clubs or be involved in a team, things like that. That's, I suppose that's, that's the only, the, the, the only issue is that you want to make sure that you're kind of giving the opportunity to everyone. But yes, you're also right. You know, that, that kind of positive recruitment in targeted areas is also definitely a, definitely food for thought for thought i think within the um services absolutely yeah and i think that's where the mentorship yeah. program comes in you go to those mm. underserved areas as well yeah um yeah so talk to me about your transition then from pro athlete to the fire service yeah so um i was actually um a secondary school teacher before i got into the fire brigade i was a PE teacher so during my time uh so once i sort of stopped rowing i i, I also had to find a real job um so um um i started teaching uh being a PE teacher so when i when i was playing rugby i was actually a full-time teacher so uh, that made it also extremely difficult because i also lived in um in surrey as well so there's a lot of traveling involved um but during so 
during my sort of the year that I got injured and had to stop playing rugby, um, I kind of was had a bit of a, a thought about what where my life's going, what am I doing, am I enjoying it type thing. And uh, I had at the time I was living with my best mate and and her her other half, and he was in the fire in the fire brigade, and he. He basically encouraged me to apply because London were looking for firefighters and said it'd be a brilliant job for you. You know, you're perfect. You'd love it, blah, blah, blah. So I, I applied, even though I was still um, a teacher at that time and thought, well, there's no harm in applying. So I did and then ended up getting through all of the rounds. And then um, then it became quite real then that I needed to decide if, I, you know, I already had a career in teaching. Was I going to give that all up to um, gamble on enjoying my career in the fire brigade, which I did. And at the age of 37, it's always a little bit, you know, worrying because, um, you know, changing your career a little bit later in life is always a gamble. Um, but once I joined, never looked back. I absolutely love it. And um, yeah, best job ever, I would say. And it's opened up so many doors and I've had great opportunities, you know, like this. I would not be involved in this crazy team if it wasn't for me joining the fire brigade. Um, so yeah, it's an absolutely brilliant job. No day's the same. And, you know, you work with fantastic people. Beautiful. Yeah, I adore it. This is why I do this now. I think mm-hmm. the, the, sadly, the best way to advocate for the fire service is to not be in it anymore. Now you can actually speak freely. So <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, where I am. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, then moving on then. So Nikki, um, same question to you. Tell me about your family dynamic, um, where you were born and siblings. Um. Okay, so I've probably got the most um, stereotypically normal British upbringing, I'd say, like boring one, really, of, of all of us. Um, I'm born and bred in Southampton, which is a town on the south coast of England. Um, and going back literally generations, my entire family are born and bred Southampton. So it's all <laughs> boring. Um, but I'd say I had a lovely childhood, really. I'm very lucky enough to have um, four parents. And my parents got divorced when I was very little um, and remarried. So I've got four amazing parents. Um, I've got a big sister and I've got a stepsister as well. Um, but yeah, it was quite sort of normal British. So, you know, my parents had jobs such as um, my dad worked for Thamesbury's, Um And my mum is an Avon lady. <laughs> and um, the other one's a, a carer. Um, and I do have a little bit of um, navy. My my um, my dad and my uncle are both um, have a navy background. My uncle's still in the navy, so there's a little bit of navy there. Um, but apart from that, it's all very um, run of the mill, stereotypical British, really. Well, with that one, you know, exposure to the military, then um, did your dad and or your uncle serve during combat and all these conflicts that we've just finally come out of? Yeah, um, my dad, um, he was in the Falklands um, and my uncle was only just retired from the Navy, but my dad retired oh, probably about eight years ago. So I grew up with him sort of, you know, being away a lot. Um, I don't remember too much about it, if I'm honest. I remember sort of painting banners and going to Portsmouth, waving him, waving him back in. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's, it's definitely sort of been present in my life. And have you seen the ripple effect of war in any way, shape, or form? Because as we were talking earlier, you know, the, the mental health element in uniform obviously is a very uh, important conversation for us to have. And now a lot of us that have been in, whether it's the military or first responder professions for a few years, I think we look at things a different way now. Okay, that's maybe why dad did this or uncle did that. Yeah, I think if I'm honest, I think I just sort of like wrapped wrapped a little bubble around it all, a little happy bubble and didn't really <laughs> let, let any of the, um, you know, 
dad going away to um to war thing really penetrate that bubble um maybe that was a protective thing but yeah I sort of um I think I mostly blanked all that out really and just focused on the on the positives like waiting for his letters home and and things like that really so that probably says all about me <laughs> the girls are all surprised right now <laughs> well talk to me then about why you chose the fire service and your journey in um, I think um, I'd done I've done uni. I went to uni in Kingston, um, which was amazing, and that led me to just an office job, really. Um, and I got into the office job, and I very quickly realised that I don't want that for my life. Don't want to be sat behind a desk for my life. Um, and I was like, what can I do? Didn't want to do the navy because I knew sort of how much it takes, you know, family away from home um and the army you'd have the same the same issue really um and i saw a i saw an advert for um an open day for female firefighters in london i was living in london at the time because of uni and i was just sort of like oh i just i went to go and check it out um and there was this woman there who was just absolutely incredible she just looked brilliant she was a yeah she's just absolutely badass um and i did all the um all the tests that you get in the physical test um of the application process and failed one of them um but really i'm so grateful that i did because that then gave me the fuel to be able to go away and be like right this is the one that i failed to then work on it and make sure that i um i came back in the application and was able to to do it no problem so yeah, that was that was it really. I sort of did one open day and I was sold on it forever. So with that, talk to me about the impact because I mean, just we were chatting about mentorship a second ago. Um, what what did you see with those young eyes, especially coming from you know a clerical position at the time that maybe lit a fire that you didn't realize was an opportunity for you before? Yeah, I think it was just. I don't know. It was something different to do. I didn't want like, you know, coming from Southampton in this very normal life. Like I was very aware that it's sort of, I mean, it's quite boring in a way. And I just wanted to do, have something of my life wasn't that stereotypical, boring, you know, route really. Um, so I think it was just sort of the combination of doing something active that was helping people um, and just sort of was was really interesting and like Bexa said no two days are the same and it just it gave it gave that opportunity for me to do something that wasn't what everybody else was doing just to break the mold a little bit and I think I, I definitely crave that whether I realized it at the time or not the the sitting behind a desk was not breaking the mold or in any way shape or form um and yeah I think I just had that in me maybe the upbringing had been so normal that I wanted to do something aside from that a little bit and what were you studying and which university were you at ah well I went to Kingston University which is in Surrey um and I did something called earth and planetary sciences <laughs> which was a really popular class there was three of us in it <laughs> during the whole degree but it's quite <laughs> funny because uh the the group that I did it with um we had different modules with other people so I've got like a, a team of friends uh who are, we're still friends to this day um and the there was only three three of us doing our particular course in earth and planetary sciences um one of which we don't speak to but one the other one is a is a pilot they're all women 
So she's a pilot, I'm a firefighter, and our other course mates who are in similar courses, they're all um they're all boys and they all sort of work in office jobs. So me and me and my pilot friend are like, yeah, we're doing something that's a bit different and the boys are in the offices. <laughs> so that's how we fix the females in the first responder professions is we get them to study planets and then they'll end up in uniform. Yeah. Got it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At the time really know what I wanted to do I went all through sort of you know um school and college just choosing things that I enjoyed doing because I didn't really know what I wanted to do at such I had vague ideas of um being sort of a science writer but like I say as soon as I got into like an actual office profession I was like no I just I just like um I like the sky I like the stars I like space I like all that kind of stuff it's very geeky I know but um but I do really enjoy it so I just sort of followed what I enjoyed at the time and it got me out of Southampton (laughs) I'm back there now mind you but it got me out to start with (laughs) (laughs) all right well the one thing that I thought was interesting about your role within the fire service and I think uh, Emily was part of this too correct me if I'm wrong talk to me about Tajikistan and what you guys are doing over there Oh yeah, that was incredible. Yeah, you're right. Emily was part of that as well. Um, it was a it was a few years ago now. Um, and originally, we basically all all the way it started was that we just answered an email that came through on sort of the intranet system at work. Um, and it was in particular looking for female um, line ops uh, qualified firefighters. Um, which means rope rescue, basically, to go out to Tajikistan to, to teach rope rescue to um, to the women out there. Um, so I was sort of thinking, oh, surely, like the world and his wife is going to be applying for this. Every 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 line ops qualified um, female in the fire service is going to be applying for this. But I was one of only a couple. Um, and me and Emily work at the same fire station um, anyway, and we both applied. Um, so we ended up going out there together with another firefighter called um, Sheila, who's absolutely brilliant. Um, and just, yeah, the opportunity to, to teach these skills to women out there who aren't, I mean, it's, it's, you're going back quite a few years to go to a place to uh, like Tajikistan. Um, they're not allowed to be firefighters. Um, when we went over there, we actually had to do a drill to prove to the um to the officers out there that we were actually firefighters they couldn't quite get their head around the fact that we we're firefighters and that we do the exact same role that Amanda does in the fire service um because the women in their fire service they do clerical roles or are in the kitchens it's it's yeah it's painful um but the basically they had um started um identifying that there's there's very sort of um rural areas in Tajikistan where the men get drawn into the cities to do roles in the cities which leaves the women behind so when accidents happen in the rural areas the the I was like oh we have women oh maybe they can do these roles um so we were pulled in to to teach them these skills um and it had to be women for religious issues they weren't allowed to be in the same room as as men certainly not to be taught by men um and it was just incredible absolutely incredible these women were like so so keen and willing to learn um and the fact that you had sort of two like three blonde western women coming in who were firefighters already and they you know they they were just so happy to learn from us and it was so humbling to be able to teach them it was incredible 
It's funny because that's kind of full circle about the World War II conversation I just had, you know, when when the men are gone, all of a sudden it's okay for the women to start filling those positions. Yeah, absolutely. It's sort of, it's, it's, it's sad in a way that it has to come to that for people to realise that, you know, what what a woman has to offer, um, but, it, but it does out there. So I think they're slowly starting to realise that, hey, you know, women are capable of doing many, many, many different things. Um, just train them up and and they've got the skills so yeah it was it was an honor to be a part of something like that beautiful all right well let's get to the story of the antarctic trip and and the creation of the fire angels so georgina let me go back to you um we'll start with you if you want to kind of um you know discuss the nucleus of this project and how the team was built and then obviously we can go to other people after that well, put it this way, if everything's going really well, everybody likes me. If it's not going so well, they all hate me <laughs> because it was kind of my idea. And it was basically at a conference called Women in the Fire Service, which runs every year, the British Fire Service. And I was there um, and unknowingly, I, the other guys were there as well. And I didn't know, I didn't know they were there. Um, there was one of the Ice Maidens, which was a British Army team, and uh, they'd been back a, a year or so. And they, she was uh, this lady called Sophie was a keynote speaker, and uh, and you know what it's generally like with keynote speakers. Everybody's got a drink in front of them, and you sort of tune in a little bit, and then you zone out, and you start thinking about your own stuff and what what's going to be next at the bar. Um, but it, she spoke for about 40 minutes and she was so engaging and captivated me with her imagery that she had on the screen behind her. Just all the images of um, uh, well, the landscape of Antarctica, um, the hardship, uh, you know, the camp life, the skiing life and then the success at the end. And, uh, and, the, and their key message was ordinary women doing, doing um, extraordinary things. And, and I love anything that gives me goosebumps. And I thought to myself, oh, that's giving me goosebumps there. And I, and I love it. And she spoke so well. And so I thought, well, I went to, well, I saw her in the bar then with the, with the then commissioner of London Fire Brigade, Danny Cotton, and they were having a chat. And I just sort of wandered up and, um, and said, it, look, is this something that, you know, a bunch of firefighters can do? And, and, and she was like, oh, my God, yeah, totally. She said, you know, we learned how to ski from DOT, which is exactly what we've done. Um, and uh, it's, she said, the planning and the planning and the training and the logistics is the is the biggest adventure. Getting to Antarctica is actually said the easy bit. So the, all the planning and training that goes on in the background. And my God, she's right. Well, I mean, we we don't have Antarctica to compare it to yet. But um, so yes, we exchanged phone numbers and we started setting it up. And uh, we met in London then and started chatting through. And uh, and that and that was that. Sort of put a put a feelers out for people who were who were interested and at the time there was um another person who was london fire brigade that um did the recruitment side not that it was a recruitment but uh, put the put the feelers out in lfb who wanted to be part of the team and i did the same in wales um and and then the team was born the team has changed in dynamic um over the three and a half four years you know it's an incredible commitment and work um and life pops up in, in in situations like this, so the team has changed. But um, I think it's myself, um, Bex, and Nikki that are the original core. Um, so we still survive, and and that was that. So as I said, yeah, when things are going really well, no one really says anything. But when things are going bad, I get the blame for everything. So uh, <laughs> so that's how it was born. 
Well, firstly, I had Danny Cotton on um, probably, God, almost two years ago now. It was uh, shortly after Grenfell, and, um, you know, she was out of the fire service now. Obviously, we discussed on the heroism of so many people that day and, and my disgust at throwing, you know, the fire department under the bus when it came to the blame and some of these other issues. So that was a phenomenal conversation. And she's, a you know, an amazing human being. Talk to me about... Um, the actual like ramp up the training that you guys have done you've just got back from norway we'll, we'll talk about everyone's experiences there but um you know how do you go from zero to training for such an incredible adventure well you you start from dots and and, and as much as you know we were all natural exercises and trainers and, and sporty people when it comes to like cross-country skiing we were not and so we, it's a bit like bambi on ice um, and uh, so we decided to go to Scotland and to the Huntley Nordic uh, Training Centre. And they've just got like an AstroTurf circuit um, and some of these brushes that you can go in straight lines. You can just go up and down. And they taught us that the most basic of skills, it was, was it a one day course? I can't remember. Yeah, one day course. And uh, they taught us the most basic of skills up there. Um, and uh, that was brilliant. And we've stayed in touch with them since. And they've helped us out with a lot of hints and tips and what we can do. And then some of the girls tried some of the um, the, the inline skating thing that, that simulates uh, Nordic skiing. And I've never seen like so many potential accidents happening in all my life. So they came back quite quickly and abandoned those on the side of the side of the thing. Um, so that's where we really started. Um, and then we started planning um, actual proper cold weather training. So we went to uh, Norway for two weeks last year. Or was it the year before? I can't remember. COVID happened in between of everything. Um, and uh, so we did um, a week of uh, basic uh, Nordic skiing. We tried cross-country skis. We tried our skis with skins on and everything. And then we spent uh, seven days then up on Hard Hard Vida um, learning camp routines and techniques and trying to apply little bits and pieces that we'd learned back at home and how, how they're, they're implemented in, you know, proper, you know, um, polar kind, kind of weather. Uh, came away from that and we've, we've, we've had COVID in the middle of that, which has scuppered a lot of training. So basically we had to do just all UK training when we could. Um, and then when we could, we, we snuck over to Sweden via Norway <laughs> <laughs> to get to Sweden to go and uh, train with a chap called uh, Toby uh, Cohen, who's uh, used to be a special, he's ex special forces UK, but he's in the Norwegian army out there in uh, Swedish army out there now and fire service. And he reached out to us and he said, look, I can, I can help, you know, come to Sweden and I can help you with the, with your basic training and stuff. And we spent um, a week then with him um, learning proper camp life and routines and, going for walks, putting a tent up, taking a tent down, putting a tent up, all the mundane stuff that, you know, it's like somebody just says, you know, go go and do that. Um, you know, how to put a tent up with using very few words, you know, if the weather's awful and trying to, you know, make direct commands and, and things like that. Uh, you know, as British, we love to sort of pile a pile of verbs in there, don't we, to make everything nice and pretty. But it, it's literally, you know, yes, no, stop, that's it, you know, just to get the tent up quickly. And then we came away from that really buoyed, um, looking looking at different routines and then other people started reaching out to us going oh can we help can we help but which was which is amazing people with uh antarctica experience you know uh, antarctic um arctic experience as well um and then so it's just been a series of returning to sweden um and uh, returning to norway and really bolstering that training 
And then it got to a point where we needed to fit in um, because you have to qualify to get to Antarctica for um, an unguided and unassisted um, expedition. Um, so we really got to the point where, right, OK, we're ready to we've got all our equipment um, because that's massive chunk of the cost. And so we thought, right, OK, we'll just uh, poodle off to Hardegavida for, for three weeks and see how that goes. Yay. And so off we went. Uh, our Norwegian fixer, Ina, very generously sorted all our logistics out for us and uh, got us on a train with all our 70 kilogram pulks. And, and off we went into the sunset <laughs> and no one saw us for three weeks. So, yeah, so that was a proper... Uh, propped up. It was. I mean, that should have happened a couple of years ago, but you know, COVID got in the way, and there was nothing we could do about that. So we literally just put bits and pieces of training together, and then we've um, applied all of that, jumped straight in at the deep end, and went for a three-week expert up on Hardanger. <laughs> Amazing. And who was it that I saw got a big black eye on that trip? <laughs> that was me. Okay, talk to me about that then. Well, I'm at the age. I roll from the girls now. I'm at their age where um, I get hot flushes and things like that. So I'm perimenopausal. And um, so I was lying in my bed. It was the first week as well. So it wasn't too cold. Uh, the second week was like minus 27. It was ridiculous. Um, but uh, yeah, the first week it wasn't too cold. And I was lying there. It was about two o'clock in the morning. And I thought, oh my God, I'm going really hot. And I had restless legs as well. And in a mummy sleeping bag, that's not great when you've got restless legs. And somebody sleeping next to you that you don't want to disturb. So anyway, so my sleeping bag zip was constantly playing up for the entire three weeks. I kept getting stuck in my sleeping bag. So I managed to unzip it and I, and I just cooled off. And about five minutes later, I thought, oh, I'm cold now. So I put the sleeping bag up. And of course, it just, you know, just kept getting caught and caught and caught. And I got to, um, I had a little tassel on it, but the tassel was cold and a little bit icy. And I got this far from my eye and I got, it just got stuck. I couldn't do the last like foot, one foot of it. And I got really incredibly angry with it. And then pulled and yanked it really hard and it just slipped through my hand and I really properly punched myself in the face. <laughs> and uh, and it, re it really hurt. And then, then at 2 a.m. I was still, I just laid back and I thought, right, well, I've just punched myself in the face. It really hurts. I'm still cold and I still can't do my sleeping bag up. Contemplating all my life choices at that, at that moment in time. And then so I woke up and of course it's dark when you wake up and everybody's just busying around. And by the time you get to put the tents down, it's daylight. And Bex shouted across to me because she's in the other tent. She shouted across to me, she went, have you got a black eye? And I was like, don't ask no more. <laughs> I punched myself in the face after the sleeping bag zip and everybody just laughed. And then we chatted about it later because we had to move on to the next campsite. Yeah. And, but it didn't drop out for like the whole three weeks. It didn't go. It's only just gone. <laughs> That's crazy. And you had so much ice around, you could have just stuck your face in the, the ice and got the swelling there. <laughs> I know, I know. I know. It was it was crazy, but it was quite laughable. Yeah. So in all the videos, I've got a proper shiner. <laughs> all right. Well, then who I want to just pick one of the other team. You, you let me know who'd be the best person. Who's the person that could talk about the exact logistics of what you're hoping to do in Antarctica? Oh, anyone. Absolutely, absolutely anyone. Bex, you go for it. You're next in line. You're next in the line on my screen. So Bex, you go. Um so uh when you talk about logistics, I suppose what the what the actual expedition entails. Yeah, and then uh, what your start point is, end point, and then and then yeah. the, the, the real world challenges that you're gonna face. Yeah. Um so we start at the Hercules Inlet. Um, and our finish point is the South Pole. So it is uh, 1,130 kilometres long. 
Um, we're aiming to cover 25 kilometers a day, um, which would lead to us completing it in 45 days, um, which is definitely achievable for the team, especially after going to Norway, because we actually cover quite a lot of distance um, every day, more than we thought, actually. And uh, in Norway, it's, a plateau uh, in Norway is not flat. It was all mountains and icy lakes that were still, for some reason, uphill. Um so, uh, so yeah, um, the things that we'll face, the sort of the big things are probably for us um, is obviously the weather will be a big factor to how long how long it takes us. Um, probably how how easy or hard it's going to be. I mean, easy is is definitely um, well, it's not going to be easy. But in terms of the weather, I think um, you know the wind can be the big storms can be up to sort of 60, 70 miles an hour. So when you're in a little tent with wind like that. It's, it's a little bit nerve-wracking, I've got to say. Um, and obviously, with the wind comes the wind chill. So, um, uh, in general, the temperatures are sort of averaging around minus 20. But obviously, with you know with a lot of wind, we can be looking at temperatures up to minus 50, which is pretty nippy. So, um, that in turn brings cold weather injuries. And I think that's probably our biggest, um, sort of the biggest uh, worry or sort of danger that we might face is cold weather injuries. So hypothermia is a big one because obviously we're still pulling our sort of 80, 90 kilogram sleds 10 hours a day. So that's how long we'll ski for. Um, so sweating is a big thing. We're trying to get our layering right and, and not sweat too much because obviously once we stop, that sweat will become cold, icy, and that's near our body. So hypothermia is quite a, quite a, a big one for us. It, uh, a big risk and then obviously um sort of frost net frostbite injuries as well are also you know uh, uh sort of always around the corner as well so um so yeah so we've we've got to um be on the ball really at all times which is really difficult when you're getting progressively tireder skiing for 10 hours a day um and, and sleeping in a tent so you know as we found out in norway after three weeks of sleeping in a tent on an airbed camping every day it's um it's quite hard work and uh, also in the cold as well. I mean, I didn't really sleep a lot in the three weeks we were in Norway, mainly because it was so cold in the tent at night. Um, but we will, we won't have quite as cold temperatures. So um, we've been told it could be plus temperatures in the tent at night because we have 24 hour daylight. So the sun will be out um, all the time. It keeps the tents actually relatively warm um, in Antarctica at night, which will be great for us um, because we've experienced such cold temperatures at night. Um, and I think sort of real world world issues is being away from our home comfort. So obviously no toilet for, you know, sort of 10 weeks. Um, and, uh, you know, our three weeks has, has put us in good stead for that. So every day we dig a new hole for the toilet, which we all use, which is interesting. So there's there's not there's nothing really to hide between the four of us. <laughs> How do you decide that. who goes first? Um <laughs> we don't really i suppose it's just whoever's desperate it's usually george because she's older you know and she goes she needs the loo quite often um, <laughs> and um and i suppose and other things like um i think for me was all you know never really been able to sit down properly always been crou always crouching around because you're living in a tent um the food is a big one so um we do take chocolate and we do take cheese and meat to eat during the day and flapjacks. Um, but, you know, we don't have like real, real food. So we, we eat freeze dried food, obviously, um, that we rehydrate um, using water. But the only way we can eat sort of in the morning and the night is once we've sat and watched 
the snow and ice around us melts basically so we can then use it for water so um so yeah it's it's probably like just go really going back to basic living really basic living and and when you come back you know when we came back from norway we've really um you really appreciate the small things like sleeping in a bed and sitting on an actual toilet um and just having a bit of your own space as well because there's nowhere to hide with all of us you know when you're with your your tent mate and then you're all together all day you know there there is nowhere to go kind of thing you're all together there isn't really any privacy so um which is fine but you really appreciate that i think when you come back as well sort of the little things absolutely well let me bring becky hinchley in um one of the the uh organizations that i didn't really know existed until very recently and i had ruth powell on talking about it was the firefighters charity i know ruth is since not with that organization anymore but uh, i met claire delaney in uh hyde park when we were doing our around the world adventure um so i know that's the uh the group that you guys are supporting so so becky talk to me about um your experience if any with the firefighters charity and and what you guys are doing to hopefully run raise some funds for them So I haven't personally had any involvement with the uh, with the firefighters charity as yet for um, for receiving any uh, of their services. I mean, they uh, but I have known um, firefighters that I work with who have um, have used the firefighters charity when they've um, uh, faced some challenges in their lives that they've not been able to overcome themselves. So the firefighters charity is actually like one of the probably lesser used charities across the UK um, and only really uh, known within the firefighter circles. So um, I came to know about the firefighter charity once I joined the fire service and um, have since then have learned a lot more about it and I've seen the benefits to the people that around me that have been away and used them. Um, they do things like uh, provide counselling services to um, to firefighters that have been through incidents that have uh, maybe been a bit traumatic for them, where they've seen um, things that are uh, not what you see in your everyday life and it's affected them. Um, I've also seen them use uh, the retreats. So the Firefighters Charity actually does a retreat where you can um, kind of take a break from everyday life and um kind of put a mental pause on things and then uh go away with them and they'll actually help you with uh processing some of the things that maybe you didn't realize were a problem um they give you chance to kind of get a bit of space away from busy day-to-day life because everyone's really really busy nowadays social media is everywhere we're connected 24 hours a day um and i think especially firefighters that are working days and nights and have no idea what day of the week it is anyway um that really adds to a lot of stress that maybe isn't there in um everyday circles so the firefighters charity is fantastic for for the provisions for family and friends as well um i know recently we've had the firefighter um who died in on duty in scotland um, and the firefighters charity have stepped up massively just to help raise funds for the family who've now got costs where they weren't anticipating costs and also have given them some um additional support on top of you know the support from their own family and friends and circles the firefighters charities reached out to them so it's something that's really really beneficial to our um line of work and um and to our support networks as well so 
we have as a team um, chosen them as our our charity because it they mean so much to um, firefighters across the UK, um, and so we're hoping we're hoping to raise funds as we go um, uh, to uh, to donate towards the firefighters charity as a result of some of the um, sponsorship work that we do, some of the um, presentations that we do so we do a lot of work where we'll go into schools and talk about the expedition to schools um, and highlight what we're doing and we speak to a lot of local businesses as well Um, and sometimes it's just people that see us dragging tires out in the park that will um, that will donate money towards our cause because you know going to Antarctica is is such a a big achievement and and people are seeing the work that we're putting into it but knowing that it's for a a charity um, kind of really helps with my, personally my own motivation knowing that it's, it's something bigger than myself um but also when you talk to other people about the reasons for doing it because most people think that you're just crazy going into um minus 50 temperatures and 60 miles per hour wind speeds in a tent um it kind of helps give them a, a realistic reason why why you would choose to do something like that and why you would challenge yourself to do something like that so um so yes yeah, so that's our that is the firefighters charity and the reason why we're um, supporting it part of our expedition. Beautiful. Yeah, we're supporting it as well. So the our adventure is going to be made into a documentary and a book and the proceeds from those are then going to be divvied up between some American charities. I'm not sure if there's an Australian one or not, but then I was I was lucky enough to choose the two UK ones and it's the Royal British Legion Industries and the Firefighter Charities. So down the road, again, hopefully we'll be starting to be able to help as well because I think what they do is amazing. Now, I know in the bio that it talks about that you were helping out during COVID and, and that you have a passion for the mental health conversation. What are you seeing in your profession when it comes to mental health? Because I would imagine, especially after the last two years with the isolation um, and also from looking across the Atlantic at the UK, I saw a lot of hand clapping at five o'clock, but I didn't see a lot of extra resources and PPE and, and staffing happening. So I could imagine now two years of what the, the workload was and maybe the extra deaths that were witnessed, there's a lot of extra baggage in a lot of people's you know backpacks, as it were. Yeah, I totally agree with you there. I think there there is an ongoing addition to baggage. We're currently in the middle of a lot of um, public sector strikes as well at the moment, um, where you're right, where the uh, the hand clapping kind of hasn't paid off for the now increased cost of living. Um, so additional to the stress of COVID, where people lost, um, you know, family family members, friends, lost touch with a lot of people, weren't able to actually go and socialise and celebrate occasions that they normally would have done missed out on getting married or um just normal life just kind of got totally put on its head um and i think the the rally around at the time maybe expended a lot more energy than what people thought that they were giving they thought that they were they were helping and a lot of people volunteered so when you talk about the the volunteering that i did i volunteered on a covid ward at darleydale hospital where i was born um and uh, that was just to alleviate some of the um, problems that they were facing more that staff members weren't able to come to work they were told to stay at home so the people that could go to work were then doing 10 20 times the amount of work that they were doing before and through no fault of anybody's it just escalated to an unmanageable limit so 
I volunteered and helped out and you could see you know everyone was very very grateful for for what we did and there was a lot of local businesses that would come and donate to um, the hospitals and the covid wards and anybody that couldn't get out we were doing a lot of pharmacy runs um, and we were checking in on neighbors that weren't able to get out of the house and the isolation definitely definitely had an effect on people um, and now the the bigger picture how it's affecting us later on down the line in uh, my um, job at the moment we've got a lot of people that are going off with mental health um, whether it's directly related to 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 covid or um, you know the current cost of living crisis I think everybody's got their own reasons for needing a break um, and for needing a mental stop and that there has been an increase but I think that there's a lot more tolerance now and a lot more help out there where people can access um, some um, maybe some online resources and also some people that weren't there pre-COVID that have now popped up. Um, so the mental health game has been a massive challenge for everybody. I think I don't think anyone in the UK has gone unaffected by what's happened in the last three years. Um, but now I think that there's a lot more um uh a lot more um positive thinking around people needing to take time off for themselves not just for physical injuries but also for mental injuries as well um and and we i mean Derbyshire is brilliant they wholly support it there are there are blue light champions there's mental health champions there's the firefighters charity who all step in and, and they've all got representatives around the uk now um and i think firefighters are uh inherently um they don't like to admit that sometimes they need that break i think sometimes there's a a feeling that they're letting people down um, if they need to take a break themselves, they're meant to be the people that people call when they need help. And um, it's hard to get over the fact that sometimes those people also need a break themselves. So it's a good change that's happening across the pond. I think we're um, we're we're a lot more invested in in not just physical health in the fire service, but also mental health as well. But I think there's a long way to go um, for people to uh, really understand um issues faced by people outside of work and inside of work and the pressures that sometimes people face um that mean that sometimes that break is just what they need absolutely well i appreciate your perspective i think that's you know, underlines what amazing work the firefighters charity is doing and rbli as well on, on the military side as well but i think there is this ripple effect and sadly i don't think we've seen the full effect of it yet so these conversations and and you know taking care of the people that took care of everyone else when they all hid in their homes and the, the frontline personnel were initially there without any vaccinations and then vaccinations and that whole thing happened but um you know now there is a cost for the doctors and the nurses and the firefighters and the paramedics and the police officers and everyone else who held the line you know that came at a cost definitely mentally physically financially and it's time that we now turn around and take care of them yeah i agree i think the um the maybe the statistics won't ever catch up with us whilst ever there's all these other problems going off in the world um that are affecting us indefinitely it doesn't seem like there's an end to it yet um but 
definitely having that time and that place to go when you feel like you need some help is becoming more and more accessible than what it potentially was before COVID. Absolutely. All right. Well, then, Nikki, I'm just going to go to you and then I will round up with Georgina just to kind of conclude this conversation. So firstly, you've done all this training in Norway. Was that some of the most beautiful sky that you've got to witness as far as observing the planets that you studied in academics? <laughs> yeah, it, it really was. I was saying to, I think I was saying to Becky when we were on um, less icy ground, I was like, in, in ordinary terms, I would adore nothing less than to just um, lie there and just watch the stars because it was just absolutely stunning. But <laughs> it was so cold. The, big, the biggest glimpse of it we got is when you popped outside to use the toilet and then you don't really want to be exposed to the elements for too long. So um, it was it was very much a, like a, wow, the moon looks incredible. Like, look at the stars while she's having a wee and then always oh, get a bit chilly out here now pop back <laughs> in the tent um there was even a moment where we we had um uh on the on the sat phone uh Ina our our contact in Norway basically gave her, gave us a, a bit of an update as to the conditions and she said there was going to be northern lights one night um but this was sort of like near midnight and I think we were all a bit like Oh, we've just done a 10 hour long skiing day. It's very cold outside. Um, yeah, maybe we'll catch it next time. But um, yeah, in in it, I literally I love nothing more than to just stare up at the sky and just watch it go by. And I think it's absolutely stunning. Um, but yeah, coupled with the practicalities of an expedition, um, like I say, 10 hour long skiing days when you, your body at the end is just a bit like, oh, I just want to lie down. Um, and being very cold outside, like minus 27 to minus 30 at night. Um, yeah, it doesn't lend itself particularly well to to stargazing, I have to admit. But um, yeah, the stars will align and I will, I will have a look at them properly <laughs> in slightly warmer conditions. <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys are planning to be in Antarctica in November. Ironically, the expedition that I was on, we never got to Antarctica. It was stage one for us and red tape of politics and a whole bunch of other things um, stopped our progress, literally. I mean, we found out less than 24 hours before we were supposed to go there. So we are now going to be in there in November. I don't know if our paths are going to cross. I'm going to literally be watching people run a marathon. So I'm not in any way, shape or form pretending I'm going to be doing any sort of uh, achievement other than being a support person for that particular group. Um, so we're a few months away. Talk to me about the needs. You know, how can people help? How how can people support at this point? Um, well, I mean, the bottom line is that we're very much in need still of um financial support to get there. Um, as you can appreciate, nothing is cheap in Antarctica. Um, we've had some amazing help and support to get us this far. Um, as the girls have been telling you about, we've had sort of Sweden training trips. We've had Nord uh, Norway training trips. We've had, you know, ex um, expedition equipment that we've needed to get and things like that. And we've been so, so lucky up to this point. Um, but we're, we wouldn't be here at all if it wasn't for the help and support of the people around us. So um, first and foremost, it's um, financial help to, to get us there. Um, that can be done um, by the website. We've got um, a website, uh, antarcticfireangels.co.uk. Um, ways to support us um, are on there and donations through there. Um, corporate sponsorship we're looking out for as well. So big companies and things like that. Um, 
anyone in that realm who who wants to help us we are more than grateful we've got um things that we sort of have been saying you know we could we can name the expedition after people we we go around to schools and we say that we can get the school names on our polks or business names on our polks so that um these people can come to the antarctic with us um, and things like that. So there's lots of ways and means to help. Um, but even if somebody can't help us financially, just to just to help spread the word. I mean, we've got a very strong message that we want to broadcast about sh- showing and proving what women are capable of. Um, and we want to be visible role models to women and grow- girls growing up so that they, they are aware that they um, have the opportunities to be any- anything they want to be in life. Um you know, that's that's sort of all sorts of things focusing on women who um, are in male-dominated industries or the other way around even. Just about showing that everybody has the opportunity to be anything they want to be in life. So we are very, very passionate about that message. So just even help and support in spreading that message, talking to us to people, talking about us to people um, is, is all greatly appreciated. Um, so, yeah basically <laughs> brilliant well thank you for that so georgina circle around just to to make sure we haven't missed anything as some parting words are there any areas that you want to make sure people hear before we kind of wrap this thing up oh oh gosh you're looking for words of wisdom <laughs> or, or or if we just missed an area that you wanted to talk about when we we sat down to do this because obviously with with five of us in this this virtual room i want to make sure i haven't missed something uh, I think I think for me it's just yeah yeah we might be going to Antarctica and Antarctica is the attention grabber, um, but it's it's our messaging is like the most important thing and we just feel like this is like the best way of grabbing people's attention is by doing something like Antarctica and something quite extreme, but I think the important message here is that it doesn't have to be Antarctica it can be you know couch to 5k it can do something just getting out of your comfort zone inspiring people you know future generations women of all ages um people, people who have suffered adversity through their whole lives um is uh, and saying yes to things um and this is what has got us all into this into this arena now is because we said yes to stuff and really pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. It doesn't matter what that is. It, as I said, it doesn't have to be Antarctica. It's just reach for stuff. And if you work hard, nothing is out of of, of your grasp, basically. None of us could ski, you know, the, the way that we needed to ski um, at the very beginning. And when we returned from our um, expedition, uh, Norway, just now, and we were skiing towards um, a training training group, and there was a Norwegian chap, um, there's, he's... Um, uh, very reputable Norwegian chap and he said to his two clients oh this is a Norwegian team returning from their expedition by the looks of it and we got we got to him and he told us he told us and he started speaking Norwegian to us and uh, and we were like oh no no Beck said oh no it's uh, we're, we're British and he went oh like that. <laughs> that kind of thing and he went I thought you were Norwegian judging by the way that you were skiing and, and everything like that and then, of course we were like well you haven't seen us going downhill yet you know it's uh... <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I mean, we've we've literally come from zero. Yes, we might be firefighters, and we have amazing jobs, and we all love our jobs and our roles and what we do. Um, but we, you know, we're very ordinary when it comes to adventures like this. And what we've learnt is literally from dot, and we've made it happen for ourselves through connecting with people and sharing information. Uh, you know. It's, it's other women coming forward and supporting us, you know, and it's about women supporting women. 
many, many years ago, it was about women competing with other women because there weren't that many roles for women. But now we're in that era now. It's women should be supporting women and people supporting people to go and achieve what they what they, what they possibly want to do. And I think that's just the, the baseline message coming from me anyway. Mm-hmm.